I really think that artists make art because they, they really love it. And maybe they can't articulate that love, and maybe that love manifests in like a you know horrible heartbreak every time they sit down to compose or to play or whatever. But I, I think it comes down to like a profound and overflowing love that makes artists make art. And I want to be in touch with that love as much as possible. This is Imagination Radio from Contemporaneous. I'm Dylan Mattingly, and I'm David Bloom. Today on the show, we take a dive into the music of Catherine Balch and her piece, New Geometry. I really, really love cooking, Mm -hmm. and I recently mastered tomka soup, and I'm probably going to make that for dinner tonight. That's Katie. Her music has been played by orchestras and ensembles all over the world, and she's currently the composer-in-residence for the California Symphony. She studied composition at New England Conservatory and Yale School of Music, and is now a doctoral candidate at Columbia. She also studied political science at Tufts, and her music is often inspired by philosophy and literature. I recently... Dylan, have you read A Room of One's Own? Yes. yes I, I can't believe I've never read that book. I just read it. And it's unbelievable. It's totally amazing. Everyone should should read it. It's Virginia Woolf's sort of essay about why there were slash are less women artists on her bookshelf hmm. than there ought to or might have been were those women given 500 pounds a year in a room of their own. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like reading one of her novels, but then it's also this, you know, incredibly pointed scholarly essay about serving literature and fiction. It's really amazing. It's only 100 pages. You should should read it. I highly recommend. Okay. We wanted to know how Katie became who she is. So we went back to the beginning. What is your earliest musical memory? (laughs) Honestly, probably my earliest musical memory is like Disney tunes. Nice. Watching Disney movies or like Star Wars or something. Um... This is much older. I obviously would have heard music before this point in my life. Um, but um, hearing the Keith Jarrett Kern concert, I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school when I heard that improvisation, and that kind of blew my mind and made me want to be like serious about music. How did you kind of make it from there to where you are today? Well, I started practicing piano a lot around that time and classical and playing jazz for fun, though I was never super good. And so I was thinking about doing music more seriously. Yeah, so I think gaining more facility on my instrument made me more interested in composing music because I I had the facility to play and explore or I was gaining that facility in a way that that made me more open-minded and also more able to sort of explore things I was imagining.
you said that gaining facility at your instrument allowed you to feel like you could create. Would it be true for you that in learning how to actually use the instrument, that that was specifically what allowed you to start imagining beyond that? Yeah, for me, I think so. I mean, I think in all these cases, it's sort of a feedback loop at a certain point, and it's it's just at what point you jump into the loop. And for me, the, the point where I jumped into that feedback loop was feeling like I could improvise at the keyboard. And, and I had the, the sort of facility to think something in my head and then execute it with my fingers, which is important. There is a difference there between sort of improvising by just letting your fingers move around and improvising by thinking something in your head and then knowing how that connects with the physical motion of what you're doing. And for me, that that opened a door, I think. And it's also, you know, when you start playing a lot, you also, I think, I started listening to a lot more music that I had never heard before. Bill Evans, Brad Meldow, a lot of, a lot of jazz pianists. And, and then getting into contemporary music, like hearing Ligeti's piano etudes. I mean, and I think because all of that was related to the instrument I played, like I didn't, I'd never heard Stravinsky's Rite of Spring or anything like that. It's, it was all piano stuff. And I think I felt some sort of connection with it or it felt like attainable in some way because it was an instrument I played and, and it made me realize how many sort of color and timbre and sonic possibilities there were on those 88 keys. We played Katie's piece, New Geometry, in 2017, and wanted to know more about it. So your piece, New Geometry, draws inspiration from Tom Stoppard's Arcadia. How did you discover the play, and uh, what, what drew you to it? Uh, I saw the play for the first time at the Yale Rep when I was a student there with Dylan. I went to that play with my friend Yevgeny, and we saw it once, and it blew our minds. I mean, both of us, by the end, we were just totally in tears. And then I went and saw it again and bought the book immediately and also realized once I read the play how much incredible, rich detail was in the text that I had missed in the live performance and also how that didn't matter at all (laughs) because I I obviously was incredibly moved by the live performance. But there's um, such a speed and agility with Tom Stoppard's writing that they're really, I don't think you really perceive that when you see a performance of this play live. I've seen it performed three times now. And then it also is incredibly pleasurable to read as a novel where you really get to sort of enjoy the juiciness of these incredibly intricate connections between words and ideas that go back and forth between these sort of two different time frames he set up within the narrative. Tom Stoppard is a British playwright who's won just about every theater award out there. Including knighthood. So he is actually Sir Tom Stoppard. And Arcadia, the play that Katie was so inspired by, is probably his most famous play. The play takes place in an English country house in two different timelines, one in the early 19th century and one in the present day. One of the main tensions in the play is between certainty and uncertainty. What can we know and what can't we know? But... 
how does a play become music? Well, there was a particular image in the play that really struck me, which was the image of the apple leaf that Thomasina Coverley wants to sort of uses it to solve her own rudimentary form of fractal geometry. Thomasina Coverley, by the way, is one of the central characters in Arcadia and the 13-year-old daughter of the house in 1809. And that image of the apple leaf and this idea of these sort of recursive venations was something that I experimented with different ways of taking that idea of recursive self-similar venations into musical lines, whether they were melodic or or sort of more gestural. I think I, I think I just started to play with with ways that metaphor could be applied to, to music. So like from from that description, it sounds like you use kind of your experience with the play as inspiration for how to create the music but not necessarily for the experience of the of the music itself. Yeah, I think that's fair. I also cuz I also don't really compose with any sort of expectation of how an audience m- member is going to experience the music or I don't have any s- sort of set goal in mind for the listener to have some experience that I've had because I don't assume that my experience is, you know, better or more interesting than anybody else's. And I'm sure that if my experiences catalyze some type of self-expression, then hopefully the reproduction of that self-expression in a public way will catalyze someone else's sort of impetus for self-expression or whatever. This idea surprised us. When you go to a movie, you assume that the filmmaker has some expectations for how you'll react to the movie. For example, is it a horror movie or a comedy? We asked if there is anything that Katie is certain will translate from how she experiences her music to how someone else does. I guess there is something about reproducing that feeling of wonder and excitement that I experienced when I saw Arcadia, but it's like the the path to that is not direct. For me, the path to reproducing that sense of wonderment through music is through sort of breaking down or finding the sort of literary or visual or metaphorical components of the play that strike me as resonant or resonating to the music that I want to write. How do you go from seeing a play and like having this amazing idea and then writing the first note for the clarinet? I tend to break things down into clean compartments and I think often when I sit down to write a piece, it is like I-, I try to put some order to the extreme bliss and joy that is making music. And, and hopefully for me, like in, in putting in, in sort of really rigorously thinking through like what, what those things are and what those sounds are and what that experience is, I can somehow create a, a sort of you know, a 10 minute piece of music or whatever that does that for someone else. But I don't know, I, I, I also think that the goal of my music is I want people to feel a sense of wonderment and, and excitement and, and sort of playful curiosity about sounds. But I don't expect that from anyone. How do you know if a piece does what you wanted it to or what you feel like you want it to? I mean, I think if I feel that sense of wonderment from listening to it, it's it's done that. Because presumably someone else has a similar pull towards whatever that piece of wonderment was that I had or I felt. 
So, I mean, I think it, it comes down to like, well, did it achieve that for me? And statistically, if it achieved that for me, it's like the, um, the birthday paradox. <laughs> What's What's explain the birthday paradox? Oh, oh right. If, when, when you have like... Yeah, when you have 23 people in, the, in a room. 23. Ch- 23 people in a room, the chances of you having the same birthday as someone else is 50-50. That's, that's <laughs> just nuts. Mind-blowing. That, yeah. So, so you're, <laughs> the translation here is that <laughs> if you like the piece of music that you've written, if there are 23 other people in the room... Yeah. Probably there's a 50 yeah. 50 chance someone else liked it also. <laughs> yeah, see how, see how I'm able to compartmentalize yeah. this very nicely. No, that's I, love that. I mean, I think that I, I mean, that. like, like we have like whatever, like 95% of the same genes as a banana. Like, I think it's not an unreasonable, <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, who knows? Maybe the bananas. Dylan got a little carried away there. We're actually only 60% identical to a banana. Um, I want to take this back to Thomasina if I can who I just adore. I just think, I just am so compelled by this character. In the play, Thomasina's often studying with her tutor, Septimus, and she's always pushing beyond the boundaries of the traditional curriculum that he teaches. In geometry, for example, Septimus teaches Thomasina to derive perfectly wrought shapes from equations, equilateral triangles, perfect parallelograms, shapes that exist only when humans create them on paper or out of materials. Thomasina pushes past this in an assignment, and she's not pleased with Septimus's grading. We brought a couple of actors in to read from this exchange. Here's Hannah Mitchell playing Thomasina and Lee Osorio playing Septimus. Alpha minus? Pooh! What is the minus for? For doing more than was asked. You did not like my discovery? A fancy is not a discovery. A jibe is not a rebuttal. <sighs> I think it is an excellent discovery. Each week I plot your equations dot for dot. X's against Y's in all manner of algebraical relation. And every week they draw themselves as commonplace geometry, as if the world of forms were nothing but arcs and angles. God's truth, Septimus, if there is an equation for a curve like a bell, there must be an equation for one like a bluebell. And if a bluebell, why not a rose? Uh, Do we believe that nature is written in numbers? We do. Then why do our equations only describe the shapes of manufacture? I do not know. And thus God could only make a cabinet. He has a mastery of equations that lead into infinities where we cannot follow. What a faint heart. We must work outward from the middle of the maze. We will start with something simple. I will plot this apple leaf and deduce its equation. You will be famous for being my tutor. I, Thomasina Coverley, have found a truly wonderful method whereby all forms of nature must give up their numerical secrets and draw themselves through number alone. This margin being too mean for my purpose, the reader may look elsewhere for the new geometry of irregular forms discovered by Thomasina Coverley. And she does it. Thomasina creates a geometry that explains the shape of an apple leaf. And in so doing, she discovers something like what we now know as chaos theory. We went to an expert to learn more about what chaos theory is. I'm Matthew Deedy. I'm the program director of the physics program at Bard College. I've been here for over 30 years. I think the colloquial 
meaning for chaos is much different from the scientific one. What does chaos theory mean from the scientific parlance? In the scientific way that we now describe it, uh, one of the best ways to describe chaotic systems are ones that are very sensitive to changes in initial conditions. So the colloquial version of it is to call the butterfly effect that a very small change in the input can give a drastically different change in the output. And this is saying that if a butterfly flaps its wings in Taiwan, it can end up changing the course of the air currents and starting a typhoon in the Philippines. What I think is really the goal of chaos theory is to broaden our idea of what it means to be able to describe a situation. An example that I like to use is the heart, the human heart. If the human heart were really like a clock or a pendulum, then it would not adapt well to running up the stairs or uh, the temperature in the room changing. In fact, the, the fact that it has a stability which is not metronomic, but is rather qualitative, that it beats roughly the same number of times a minute, uh, but it will beat faster when you need it to, but it responds to stimuli of different kinds in different ways, actually gives your metabolic system a chance to withstand uh, disturbances in a way that a perfectly regular Newtonian system wouldn't. So this is saying that we may think, and in the 19th century view, we may have thought that what we always wanted to do was to find a regular, repeating, always predictable pattern. But in fact, many of the things in the world don't work in that predictable, always repeating way. And that's a good thing. What do you think it says about Thomasina, this fictional 13-year-old uh, who, in, who in 1809 discovers kind of these methods on her own. Mm -hmm. Well, the funny thing about it is that it's not improbable that this could have happened. So it really took more someone with the imagination, and this is where the 15-year-old comes in, a person who isn't inordinately restrained by previous models of what we know and don't know so that she didn't know not to ask these questions. I think that's very, it's very conceivable that someone in her day and with the kind of mathematical training that she had at that stage in her life and more imagination than training would have stumbled upon some of these things. Yeah, I mean, I think this young character is really inspiring to me. This idea of uh, an incredibly inquisitive, ferociously curious young person who happens to be a woman is to me a really striking feature of the play. And what I love about Stoppard's portrayal of her is that she 
is so rich in her dimensionality. She's she's discovering sexuality. She's discovering math. She's discovering literature. She's discovering nature. She's discovering her relationship to the garden, the the English garden around her estate. There's so much dimensionality to her ability to discover things that she feels like a really complete character to me. And I think that's really satisfying to identify with or be inspired by. Um, and I think it's really amazing that this person isn't real and you feel so deeply like this person is completely whole by the end of the play. So much so that her death which is very much sort of foreshadowed throughout the course of the play, um, is just like the most devastating thing ever. And I think that's an amazing thing about fiction. I, I mean, is this ability to simultaneously have this completely ideal, beautiful picture of a person that's infused with so much realness that it, it yeah, it feels... It feels so devastating when the play is over. I think whether or not Thomasina would have died at the end of the play, just the very fact that the play is over and I can't enjoy this person existing anymore, I, I can only find fragments of this person, you know, in, in the people around me. There's something sort of devastating about that. You went really deep with the image of her picking up this apple leaf and kind of figuring out what makes it tick and wanting to map it out. And, and the, you kind of used that as, as a structural building block for your piece. Uh, how did you make that happen in the music? I think eventually the way that metaphor translated into new geometry is there are these really long sort of melismatic patterns of pitches that start in this microtonally confined space and then basically get spread out to to a very close-knit chromatic pitch space then to a sort of diatonic pitch space and then sort of to to a much more open quasi overtony pitch space so thomasina's math allows her to zoom in on the minuscule intricacies of the shape of an apple leaf plotting every angle in vain katie goes in the opposite direction in her piece starting with tiny, compact musical gestures and zooming out over the course of the entire piece to a broad musical landscape. At the beginning, the music is microtonal, meaning that there are lots of notes that are between the keys of a piano. At this point, the music is so zoomed in that in the span of three keys of a piano, Katie has written seven or so different notes. Gradually, the music begins to morph from microtonal to chromatic, meaning that the smallest distance between notes is from one key to the next on the piano. But there's still a lot of notes. Notice how one instrument at a time becomes prominent. Finally, the harmony broadens into a beautiful sonority in which Katie uses only a few notes at a time, all overtones of a single pitch.
This set of pitches is called the harmonic series, and when you hear them all together like this, the sound has this gorgeous warm glow to it. What David means is that every pitch we hear ever is actually a collection of different notes that come together to make a single sound. What Katie does in the end of New Geometry is to orchestrate all of these little notes that comprise that single sound. So over the course of the piece, the music goes from very tiny microtonal melodies to a single broad harmony at the end. And that became the sort of metaphor that I likened to the venation of, a, of an apple leaf starting from the most intricate parts of the vascular system at the very tip of a leaf that recurse their way in or technically out towards the core vascular stem of a leaf. And yeah, there's there's lots of, I think there are composers like Alberto Posados and Per Norgard that, that take this sort of fractal metaphor and and do a lot more math with it in their music and two amazing results. My approach became uh, much more a sort of inspiration that inspired a sort of process in the music, but sort of abandoned the math. We asked Katie how she incorporates the influence of other composers like Per Norgard into her music. Very openly, because I think we all do it whether or not we're acknowledging it. Um, And I'm very attracted to the idea of responding openly and clearly to the work I admire by other artists. And showing or trying to show and of course it never turns out that way because it always turns out to be your music but your influences so I think you know in all of my pieces there are certain composers I have in mind all the time or certain pieces I have in mind as pieces that I think about trying to capture some essence of and of course because it's you trying to capture the essence of that piece not that composer it's going to be completely different and maybe not even perceptible. We're listening to Per Norgard's Voyage into the Golden Screen, which is a great example of his use of what he calls the Infinity Series, his own musical version of fractal geometry. While Norgard's approach to depicting the patterns of nature is very mathematical, Katie's is more environmental. Physicist Matt Deedy talked about how the fractals and shapes of nature come across in Katie's piece. And what the, the piece works on very well and, and actually reflects certain aspects of, of chaos theory is the idea of fractals, which is the new geometry that, that the piece's title refers to. And fractals, like the edge of a leaf or like the irregular shoreline, uh, are things that show different levels of detail when you zero in on them on smaller and smaller scales. And they turn out to not be simple lines or curves, but actually something that has more intricate structure within it. And the only way to actually make sense of the structure is to develop a pattern which repeats itself at smaller and smaller scales. In other words, you generate these patterns by iteration by the same kind of iteration that uh, 
that Thomasina was working with in the play and by the same kind of iteration that the ensemble is taken through in the musical piece. And the new geometry that you're seeing is this self-similarity at different scales. New Geometry was originally written for Ensemble Intercontemporain in Paris, and Katie expanded the piece for Contemporaneous, adding five instruments to the score and extending a few moments in the music. We premiered that new version in April of 2017. We asked her what she changed for this new version, and one thing she mentioned piqued our interest. I was able to add a lot more sort of moments of dirtying up the sounds, so adding little subtle breathy doublings of melodic lines to sort of make those things sound a little dirtier or blurrier. Um, That's something I, I liked about this version. What's appealing to you about, I mean, in those specific instances about making those sounds blurrier? dirtier i think what's appealing to me is this sort of idea or process of something sort of hazy becoming transparent which is a lot like my compositional process in a way where i start out writing a ton of stuff and it's only through the course of working through all that material some of which is gonna be part of the piece and some of which is not that this this sort of hazy accumulation of sound becomes transparent or becomes what the you know eventually at some point it it becomes clear to me what the piece needs to be i i think a lot of the form of my music is just me telling a story of how i composed the piece and i think it's similar with this one One thing Katie does in this piece is to bury a musical line that gets traded from player to player, and part of rehearsing the piece entails finding that line together. A lot of the time, when we hear a melody in music, just one instrument or a group of instruments plays the entire melody, but in New Geometry, there are often melodies strung together between different instruments that each play just one note of the melody. Meanwhile, there's a frenzy of moving lines around this one most prominent melody. As musicians, We all have to know what the most important line is and who plays which part of it. So a big part of rehearsing this piece involved finding those melodies and practicing trading off the notes in the line so that it sounds like one phrase rather than a bunch of notes next to each other. That process in rehearsal reminded me of a passage in Arcadia with Valentine Coverley, a character in the present day timeline of the play. Yeah, I just, I love that. Can I just read that part from- Please. It's my favorite, it's one of my favorite, um, Okay, so he goes, distortions, interference, real data is messy. There's a thousand acres of more land that had grouse on it. Always did till about 1930, but nobody counted the grouse. They shot them. So you count the grouse they shot. But burning the heather interferes and improves the food supply. A good year for foxes interferes the other way. They eat the chicks. And then there's the weather. It's all very, very noisy out there. Very hard to spot the tune. Like a piano in the next room, it's playing your song but unfortunately it's out of whack. Some strings are missing. The pianist is tone deaf and drunk. I mean, the noise, impossible. And then later he says, if you knew the algorithm for understanding grouse populations in in English estates (laughs) in 
19th century um, England. He says, if you knew the algorithm and fed it back, say 10,000 times, each time there'd be a dot somewhere on the screen, you'd never know where to expect the next dot. But gradually you'd start to see the shape because every dot will be inside the shape of this leaf. It wouldn't be a leaf, it would be a mathematical object. But yes, the unpredictable and the predictable and the predetermined unfold together to make everything the way it is. It's how nature creates itself on every scale, the snowflake and the snowstorm. It makes me so happy to be at the beginning again. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really beautiful passage. And there's a joyfulness to this disorder that I think is really sort of the point, is it's not that chaos is sort of symbolic of anger or confusion or rage or whatever. It's that chaos is, the joy is in chaos and, and finding patterns to that chaos or finding or tracing your own melody right, which for Valentin in the play, his, his own melody is, he, he wants to understand the flow of grouse population. And there's something like really, of all the things he could look at, all the data he could look at on this estate, you know, the fox population, the grouse population, who was hunting on the estate. When the garden was redesigned, he chooses the melody of, I want to know the grouse population. And there's something super beautiful about that, I think. And this character's sort of joyful and unabashed love for that thing he's doing, I think, resonates with me. I feel that within my experience of listening to New Geometry, but could you tell us what, how that factors into the way that you write the music for this piece? I think that even though composing is really hard, there's a playfulness to it for me, and there's almost this sort of... Obviously, it's not science in any way, but there is a sense of scientific discovery. Like sometimes when I'm composing, I feel like, like, you know, when you're a kid and you do all those like fun science experiments with dry ice or whatever, you make soap or something. But there's like sort of this playfulness of like, oh, I'm mi mixing this thing together and now I'm going to put it under fire and then it's going like, to turn into this whole new substance. Like there's a playfulness to that process that I want to come across or... I hope comes across in my music, or at least I want to share that experience in some way to the best of my ability with a listener. The ideal way I would like my music to be presented or part of an artistic experience is is part of a one that is not just music like I, I like the idea of my music existing in a space where other mediums of art exist so that people can maybe experience or have access to the sort of multi-sensory and multi-genre feeling I have when I'm composing. New Geometry has so many layers of genre embedded in it from a scientific concept within a play, to a single apple leaf, to the shapes in nature as a whole. So when you peer into Arcadia and chaos theory and feel the wonder of looking at a leaf, you experience exactly what Katie wants, 
you relived, in a sense, the story of her writing this piece. I mean, my parents are both biochemists, and I think a lot about the sort of overlap or not between what I do and what my parents do. The natural world is super inspiring, and I think a lot of scientists think that too. (laughs) (laughs) What is it about that that makes you want to turn your experience with it into music? I mean, rather than being a scientist, for instance. Right. I mean, because music is how I music is my way of of taking the things I love and and making them my own and making them sort of a vehicle for my own self-expression. I think for my mom, science is exactly that for her, you know, studying this little protein dynamic that works in endocytosis is her way of taking the thing she loves, which is a, you know, a fascination since she was a child with the natural world and making it her own and making it something that she feels like is she champions and is a some form of self-expression you know i don't know i don't think she would ever say that <laughs> i don't think she would say her research is a form of self-expression but but i think it is yeah i think that people underestimate the level to which creativity is necessary for scientific progress. They think, um, they think that science is all deductive and you just follow the answers through. Uh, scientists need to generate an idea to think about things in a different way and in that sense it's not all that different from the artistic creation that you guys are so familiar with whether we're talking about composing a piece or bringing the piece to life in the kinds of performances that Contemporaneous does, where you want to, you want to be faithful to the structure that's been provided to you, like I'm faithful to the science, but I want to apply it in the moment in a way that seems to be calling to me, perhaps not entirely logically, but more because I'm sensing something that I want to get across or that I want to get to understand. And I think that's the way in which musicians and scientists have more in common than many people would assume. find the most pleasure in art making when I'm doing it consistently and it's taken me a long time to sort of realize that consistency doesn't mean always finishing something consistency is about a sort of practice of every day sitting down to think about these things and um, maybe writing down my thoughts whether those thoughts are in the form of dots with lines going up or down from them by that she means writing notes or those thoughts are in the form of drawing or highlighting, you know, and circling moments from Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, there's a consistency in the practice of doing that every day. And that's something that for me has been really important to my happiness. And I do think that the sort of idea of the suffering artist is like a little bit in some ways of a romantic fallacy, because I really think that artists make art because they they really love it. 
and maybe they can't articulate that love and maybe that love manifests in like a you know horrible heartbreak every time they sit down to compose or to play or whatever but I, I think it comes down to like a profound and overflowing love that makes artists make art and I want to be in touch with that love as much as possible and for me that consistency of practice is what's been helpful. asked Katie what she's listening to these days, and she gave a long list of really amazing music. And this one we found particularly interesting. Bach's Sonatas and Partitas, because there is a violinist, Josh Modney, who has undertaken this project of performing these just intonation interpretations of the Sonatas and Partitas that he's been playing with for a number of years. sounds like this insanely dissonant minor triad, even though in some ways in just intonation land it's quite consonant. Imagination Radio is a production of Contemporaneous, a New York-based ensemble of 22 musicians dedicated to the most exciting music of now. Hear more music, sign up for our email list, find upcoming shows, and learn more at contemporaneous.org. This episode was produced by David Bloom, Dylan Mattingly, that's me, and Charles Van Tassel. Our interns were Nora Grace Flood and Maeve Schaller. Thank you to our guests for this episode, Katie Balch, Matthew Didi, and our actors, Hannah Mitchell and Lee Osorio. For a complete listing of the music in this episode, check out the show notes. You can subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts or stream it online at contemporaneous.org slash imagination radio. And please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps people find the show. Stay in touch on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On all three, we are at eContemp. In a couple of days, we'll drop a bonus episode into this feed with a complete live recording of Katie's piece, New Geometry. Thank you for listening. I think it is an excellent discovery. Each week, I plot your equations dot for dot, x's against y's in all manner of algebraical relation, and every week they draw themselves as commonplace geometry, and as if the world of forms were nothing but arcs and angles. God's truth, Septimus, if there is an equation for the curve like a bell, there must be an equation for one like a bluebell, and if a bluebell, why not a rose? Armed thus, God can only make a cabinet. I know. Septimus, uh, 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 well, he has mastery of equations that lead into infinity where we cannot follow. What, what a, a faint, faint heart! heart. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. This is definitely all going in the final product. Yeah. Yeah.